Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hello, hello. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am your host, Liv. Here with the annual, Liv takes a couple of days off over the holidays slash probably just uses the time to work on more things that have backed up and or to keep from completely losing her mind over the dark winter sad things. (sighs) Anyway, uh, what I'm saying is today I'm here with a re-airing of past episodes. And given we've just so recently finished the absolutely fascinating Euripides play Iphigenia Among the Taurians, I thought it would be fun to revisit like a really similar play of his, which I did not realize how similar they were. And also like, ugh. anyway, it's fascinating. Um, but the Helen. Iphigenia spends a lot of time shitting on Helen. And yet Euripides very intentionally wrote the Helen as like a very similar play. And it is a pretty decent argument, I believe, to be made that they were also put on at the same festival. And I think that is so interesting. So back in the spring of 2022, I covered the Helen and fuck if it wasn't absolutely mind blowing. This play is fascinating. It explores a very different version of Helen. One that like did not go to Troy at all and handles her own destiny in whatever way she can. 
Again, it is vastly similar to Iphigenia among the Taurians, from Helen being brought by a god to a foreign world far from her Greek home, to her waiting out the Trojan War there, to someone arriving on that same land, only for a case of very silly and dramatic identity reveal to take place, to a daring escape by sea that is handled entirely by the wit and cunning of the woman rather than the man who kind of just sits back and lets everything happen. And yet again, as we heard in Iphigenia, she is so disgusted by Helen. She is so ready to blame her for the Trojan War. And it's this play that then makes clear that Euripides like wasn't passing his own judgment through Iphigenia, but instead examining women in the ancient world and like what they were allowed to do versus what they were capable of doing, if given the opportunity, and how the world around them could lead their them to have misplaced anger and distrust. Like, ugh, Euripides loved to explore female characters. And this play, and the one I'm going to air on Friday, for that matter, are brilliant examples of that. So here it is. This is all four parts of my episodes on Euripides' Helen in one long-ass episode, because there isn't a better time to listen to an excessively long podcast episode than over the holiday season. Whether you're celebrating anything or not, here's a bunch of content. Enjoy. This is episode 173. What if Helen was a ghost, though? Euripides' Helen, part one. I don't know if I've ever truly emphasized the nature of some of the plays by Euripides that survive. I've mentioned it in passing, definitely, probably harped on it a little bit here and there, and have definitely referenced it when speaking with scholars on Euripidean works. But have I ever just sat you all down and fully explained how incredible it is that we have as many plays by Euripides that we do? Because guess what? I'm going to do that right now. Athenian tragedy, that is, the plays by Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, the Athenian tragedians that survive, in themselves are obviously some of the most incredible and exciting works to come out of the ancient world. That so many of their works survive is, in itself, a real feat of nature and generally humanity. These three playwrights survive because they were the most famous. Aeschylus was famous in his lifetime and afterwards, with people like Sophocles and Euripides looking to his talent when developing their own. He was the earliest by decades, a generation before them when it comes to the writing of tragedy in Athens. Sophocles, as I understand him, was also pretty famous in his time and definitely more so after his death. Euripides was a bit of an oddball, surprise, surprise, and he gained most of his fame down the line. He was still notable back then, but he wrote weird stuff. And that was really memorable to people. And he did win quite a few competitions, though. And he wrote a hell of a lot of plays. Now, the three of them, their work has survived for the most part because they were taught in schools, namely Byzantine schools. They were so appreciated by the people of the Byzantine period, a good thousand years after the playwrights were writing, that their works were preserved for those reasons. They were appreciated, copied when the editions were wearing out. The Byzantine schoolmasters made sure that they always had, say, the Oresteia of Aeschylus or Sophocles' Antigone or Oedipus Tyrannos on hand. 
They were copied enough times that they became a real part of the canon of literature, and then finally made their way to us 2,500 years after these plays were written. But there is a whole section of the Euripides catalog of plays that were not school favorites, but we do have today. They were not taught in schools, not appreciated as these like perfect works of ancient art and that needed to be learned from, studied, revered. They were just seen to be like average or maybe even bad. Certainly that's the case for Aeschylus and Sophocles too. They would have written plays that weren't anything special that we might consider bad. That's the nature of humanity, particularly when one is writing quite so much. But we don't have their mediocre work, so we can't compare. We do, however, have some of the works of Euripides that were seen to be mediocre in the ancient and early modern world. And that's because of one random stroke of luck. One random collector who had gathered all of the 92 works of Euripides for his personal collection. One random collector who had all these plays organized alphabetically and one big scroll that contained all of the Euripides plays beginning with the letter Eta, E, to Kappa, K. That's why we have so many that begin with I and H in English, because they began with Eta or Iota in Greek. The Iphigenias, the Heraclidae, Hippolytus, Hecuba, Heracles, and, yes, the Helen. The survival of so many random plays, rather than those that were specifically deemed worthy of teaching in schools, is important not only because it means we just have so many more of Euripides' plays, but because it gives us insights into the others, the weird ones, the ones people didn't necessarily love at the time or afterwards. It lets us look at what it meant to have written 92 plays in one lifetime and how that means that not all of them were brilliant works of art. Some of them were something else entirely. And I'm not saying any of them are necessarily boring or bad, though I have to admit I have not read all 18 of the surviving plays of Euripides, and certainly Helen isn't boring or I wouldn't be sharing these episodes with you. Instead, the Helen is weird, experimental, odd, a complete departure from the standard story of Helen and Menelaus and the Trojan War. This Helen is a character unto herself. This is Euripides turning the Trojan War and all of its expectations on its head. It's him examining, yes, you guessed it, the thoughts, feelings, and motivations of women, because he's Euripides, and he was interested in the lives women led, particularly women as notorious as Helen of Sparta, Helen of Troy. The alphabet plays of Euripides, as they're called, give us some of the most important insights into the playwrights broadly, and how their work was received in the ancient world, Plus, it's just seriously so fucking cool that I had to begin an episode with an epic diatribe on how and why we have so many of Euripides' plays surviving. Whew. But today is about Helen, the Helen of Euripides, but also Helen of another early writer named Stesichorus. He who invented the ghost theory. Ghost theory, you say? Intriguing. I know. And maybe it's wrong to be using the word ghost for this, but it sure caught your attention. 
And for good reason, because not only does it have ghosty elements, but there's a supposed real life curse attached too. Before we get to Euripides and his Helen, we need to talk Stesichorus. Stesichorus was an archaic poet who wrote many, many poems about the Trojan War. As far as I can figure it out, none of his poems survive in full or even big chunks. He was written about later by many and for so long that we generally know what he wrote and who he was. We know he was an important figure in archaic poetry, particularly relating to the war. See, he's said to have written and sung a poem about the war that described Helen's leaving Sparta for Troy, the usual sailing off with Paris... And he apparently didn't make her look too good in this poem, seeing her more as that kind of traditional Helen that we know, the one who up and leaves her husband and daughter for this hot guy from Troy, because why not? Then, Stesichorus says, he went blind. He says he went blind because he insulted Helen, that divine and beautiful Helen. So he set to write out another poem to make up for the first and with any luck, use it to get his eyesight back, as you do, you know, in the ancient world when you're inadvertently angering important divine people. His other poem about Helen is what we're concerned with today. Plato quotes from this poem, which is why we have the line, quote, that was not a true tale. You did not sail in the well-benched ships, nor did you come to the towers of Troy. He's speaking to Helen. He's trying to take it all back. Stesichorus introduces the idea that Helen never sailed to Troy at all. Of course, he can't just rewrite the entire Trojan War to make one woman happy, make her give him his eyesight back. So he comes up with this workaround. Helen never sailed to Troy with Paris, never got on those ships, sailed away, leaving her husband and daughter behind. But someone did. Instead, Stesichorus says that Paris abducted an Eidolon. An Eidolon isn't a ghost in the modern sense of the word, but honestly, it's close enough. An Eidolon is a concept that really isn't seen explicitly beyond this story of Helen in the same way. It's a spirit, a copy even, of a person. She looks like Helen and sounds like Helen, and given the nature of the Trojan War, it's pretty clear she was indistinguishable from Helen. But she is not Helen. She's not real. She's just kind of there. But we'll get back to the logistics of the Eidolon, because while Sisychorus introduces it to the story of the Trojan War, it is this play by Euripides where we get a real story revolving around the idea of the entire Trojan War being fought over ghost Helen. Oh, and what about Stesichorus' eyesight, you ask? Yes, apparently this rewrite of Helen's story, making her good and pure and never having run off with Paris to begin with, was enough to lift whatever curse was put on Stesichorus and he regained his eyesight. Because stories from ancient Greece are fucking awesome.
our story, Euripides' Helen, begins not in Sparta, not in Troy, but in Egypt. This, you see, is where the real Helen has spent all of the Trojan War, while Eidolon Helen has been holed up with Paris. And it opens with a monologue by none other than Helen herself. A woman opens the play, and she speaks for a while. Just, you know, try to ignore the fact that she would have been played by a man. We've got to. Her monologue begins with a bang. Quote, So beautiful, so chaste. She continues, speaking of the Nile River and what it brings to the plains of Egypt. Is the Nile River so beautiful, so chaste, or is it this Helen, this alternate Helen, this Helen who is and will continue to be a complete and utter departure from the Helen we know from literally every other story and source? This Helen is beautiful, but she is also chaste. Helen then introduces the setting of the play, Egypt, and the people there with her. The king, Theoclymenus, who is the son of the now-dead king, Proteus, and his sister is there too, Theonoe. She's a priestess and a prophetess. But Helen doesn't dwell on Egypt, instead switching to the story of her own life, her parentage in Sparta. She speaks of Tyndareus, her human father, but perhaps not her biological father. For that, she turns the story to Zeus and Leda. Quote, There is another story, if it's true, that Zeus became a swan and flew disguised, chased by an eagle into my mother's bed, and tricking Leda, he achieved his end. There's no sugarcoating this, Zeus. No pretending that it's all well and good and that he did that to Leda because he's a god and he's allowed. Instead, Helen makes pretty clear that it's gross and weird and generally bad. From here, she tells us and the audience how she got to be where she is now. She tells us the story of the Eidolon, continuing to turn the story of the Trojan War on its head and introduce this foreign, odd, and very controversial idea. It's not the real Helen's fault, actually. She speaks of the judgment of Paris, the story we all know so well. Paris brought in to judge a beauty contest between Aphrodite, Athena, and Hera. Who is the fairest? Quote, My beauty was what Aphrodite offered, if curses count as beauty, and she won by promising him me. 30 lines into this play and I'm already obsessed with this Helen. What a fucking badass line. But this is where it diverges. Helen goes on to say that Hera, angry at having lost the contest, quote, turned my affair with Paris into wind. She gave King Priam's son an empty image, not me, but something like me, made of air, but breathing. And that is the Eidolon, sent by Hera. An empty image, not Helen, but something like her, made of air, but breathing. Helen speaks of the war, of Zeus and his hopes to lighten the weight on Mother Earth by having the Trojans and Greeks kill one another. 
She speaks of all of this taking place in her name, of the suffering of war, the suffering of the Trojans specifically. Quote, So I, not I, my name, was made the prize, a gift for Greeks, a test for Trojan valor. Hermes, she says, concealed her in folds of air and brought her to the house of Proteus in Egypt. Apparently, quote, picking the most self-disciplined of humans to save the purity of my marriage bed for Menelaus. She speaks of the curse upon her that for all of the rest of the world knows she is the Helen they think she is, a woman who abandoned her family, her husband, for another man, flying off to another world where she cheated on her husband. That everyone thinks she is who the Eidolon is. And finally, the most important detail. While the king of Egypt, Proteus, was alive, she was protected. He was kind and good. She was safe. She could continue to protect herself against men who wanted her. She could continue to be faithful to Menelaus, which, importantly, this Helen is very passionate about. She loves her husband. But now, Proteus is dead. And she explains, quote, His son is hunting to marry me. I'm here to throw myself on Proteus's tomb. I'm praying to save myself from my original husband, whom I honor. Even if my name is smirched through Greece, my body will never be tainted here. Have I mentioned how much I love Helen? How much I love Euripides' ability to give women true voices, personalities, passions, desires? With Helen's introduction out of the way, we know what's going on. We know that she is in Egypt, that her Eidolon, a ghost of her, is in Troy, where the whole of the world is still fighting over her, or at least they have been. It's come to an end now, because there's a Greek who's just landed on the shores of Egypt, and he's startled to see this woman who looks an awful lot like Helen, the creature they've just spent ten years fighting over. Teucer, brother of Ajax, and man whose name I hate trying to pronounce in English because it's just not natural, has arrived in Egypt, and he sees Helen. Quote, Oh, gods, what's this? It looks like that most hated murderess of me and all the Greeks. May the gods curse you, counterfeit Helen. Counterfeit Helen. Oh. The first few lines of anyone other than Helen really hammer in what's going on. Helen might know that she's the real Helen, but no one else does. Helen doesn't confirm or deny who she is, that she is Helen, but Teucer seems to realize that it can't be her. He's just sacked Troy over her. This is just a woman who looks like her. So they speak. He explains why he's there. So far from his home in Salamis, he's been exiled by his father for his brother's death in Troy. Ajax, you might remember, fought over Achilles' armor after his death, and when he lost, he threw himself on his own sword. There's more to it, of course, but this isn't about Ajax. We just need to know who Teucer is, what he's gone through, and why he's there in Egypt, speaking with Helen, who he doesn't think is Helen. They speak of the war. Helen asks every question she's had in her mind for so many years. How long were you there? What happened? How long has it been since Troy was sacked? 
And this is where we learn that it's been seven years since Troy was sacked, making it 17 years since she was first removed from Sparta. She continues her questioning. Did you ever recapture the Spartan woman? She asks, referring to herself. She's told, yes. Quote, Menelaus dragged her by the hair. She confirms that Teucer actually saw this happen with his own eyes, saw Helen herself being dragged away by Menelaus. She's trying to feel out the Eidolon of it all. Then she asks if she were real, this Helen, or an apparition from the gods. And he changes the subject. Helen pushes back, though. She has to know as much as she can about her Eidolon, and more importantly, her husband. Is this sighting of Helen trustworthy, she asks him. She must know how real this Eidolon was, how much it fooled even the man she's been waiting for all this time. But Teucer is convinced it was Helen. He says that she and Menelaus went off together from Troy, but he adds, when she asks, he hasn't returned to Mycenae or to Sparta, and Menelaus might have even disappeared with his wife. Helen is, rightfully, pretty distraught by this. The gods removed her from her home. They sent this fake Helen to cause horrible trouble in her place. <sighs> Most importantly, though, she just loves her husband, and she's relying on him to finally find her and bring her home to Sparta. Now that this king Proteus is dead and his son is trying to force her to marry him, her prospects aren't looking great without Menelaus. But she realizes Teucer can also give her information about the others that she was forced to leave behind in Sparta. She asks about her mother, how she is. Dead, he tells her. Dead for shame of Helen's actions. Oof, that's a blow. What of her brothers, she continues, the Dioscuri, Castor and Polyduques. They're dead too, he says, and Helen's heart breaks just a little bit more. The consolation there, though, is that he tells her that maybe the gods actually placed them in the sky as stars. Except, he adds, there's another story where they also killed themselves because of what their sister did. The blows to Helen keep coming. The news is bad enough if she had actually gone off to Troy with Paris, either by her own will or otherwise, but this new story, this idea that she never went with him at all, that she's just been waiting for this news in Egypt for 17 years makes the whole mess so much more tragic and emotional. So many people died for her Eidolon, her ghost, put there at the will of the gods. Euripides does love to blame the gods for human tragedy, and I am always here for it. Finally, Helen has gotten all of the information that Teucer has to offer her, all without revealing the truth of who she is, let alone the truth of the Helen that the Greeks and the Trojans witnessed in Troy. When he's finished answering her questions, he asks something of her. Where is Theonoe, the prophetess, the princess? He wishes to see her for news on his own travels, how it is that he should reach Cyprus. 
Helen shuts that right down. She tells him he can't stay there in Egypt, can't be seen for even a second by the king, Theoclymenus. He kills all Greeks on sight, she explains, but adds that she can't and won't explain why. All that matters is he mustn't stay there. He has to leave immediately. He's grateful for this information. He takes her advice without question. And before he leaves, he adds, quote, Your body is like Helen's, but your heart is very different. Not at all alike. May she die and never reach the banks of the Eurotas. But to you, good luck. Ugh, the dramatic irony. Euripides is really playing with the audience, playing with the Greeks, just amping everything up. Who is Helen and who is this Eidolon? What can she be blamed for and what is the fault of this divinely sent ghost? What is real and what is invented? With that, Teucer is gone and Helen is left to feel the full weight of everything she's just learned. Her husband, who she loves and misses, is missing with the ghost of herself who's caused so, so much violence and death. Her mother and her brothers have died, all because of the same ghost of Helen, and she's still stuck in Egypt, fending off a horrible man who wants to marry her against her will. Things are not looking good. But this is Euripides, after all. Helen sings, trying to convey her emotions to the audience. She begins by calling upon the muses. To whom should she direct her song? And then she finds her voice, quote, Fly to me on your wings, young daughters of the earth. Sirens, bring to my cries of mourning a Libyan oboe or pipes to harmonize with my grief. Tune your tears to mine and sing my songs. Match your melody to my lament, so that the queen of death, Persephone, may gain a gift from me of a tearful hymn to the dead. Fuck, that's beautiful. Here she is, sitting with her grief, her immense sadness, and she calls upon the divine women she knows can feel her pain, can sympathize. To the muses, to the sirens, those creature women who sing so beautifully that they cause death. And to the goddess of death, the queen of death, the woman who also lost her own mother in a way, and who knows the pain and sadness of loss. What's most important, though, is she knows to call to the women. She knows the women will understand her, will see the truth in all that's happened, in all the death and tragedy and sadness. From here, the chorus picks up her song. They are women, of course, and they continue Helen's song of women. Theirs, though, is tragic in other ways. They sing of a time when they heard a woman's cries, wailing. Quote, a sad song that no lyre could play. They sing that she was wailing, crying, screaming across mountains and through caves because she was being raped by Pan. 
It is not unimportant that the first lines of the chorus in this play are about a woman being assaulted by a god, and that the chorus is specifically likening Helen's wails of sadness to that particular sound. It is Euripides, and the gods are so often the real antagonists of his play. Here, they are the ones behind the Eidolon, behind Helen being removed to Egypt, the ones behind the war that's killed so many. And in being behind so many things, they're the cause of her mother's death, her brother's, even her missing husband. And then we're reminded of the horrors they commit against humans, particularly women. It is explicit here that this is a violent assault by a god that the chorus is recalling, bringing up out of almost nowhere. It's a suggestion of what the gods are capable of, and perhaps even a hint at what could be in store for Helen if she's forced to remain there in Egypt. They continue on, Helen and the chorus singing back and forth, as Helen tells them what she's learned, and they, in turn, sing to her of her grief. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. episode 174 that feeling when your ghost eidolon causes the most famous war in ancient history euripides's helen helen is in mourning She's just been told that not only did the Trojan War go on for ten years, all that fighting and death over her, except it wasn't over her at all, but some divinely fake version of her, that not only did it go on for ten years, but it's been another seven since it ended, seven years since it ended, and still no sign of her husband learning her whereabouts, finding her. And to make it all so, so much worse, her mother and her brothers back home are all dead all dead because of their grief over her. All that death and sadness in the name of some ghost version of her, while she's just been forced to sit and wait it out. And now? Now she can't even wait it out in comfort, because the good king Proteus is dead, and his shitty son, Theoclymenus, is in charge. And he wants to marry Helen, whether she wants to or not. Things are not looking good. And so Helen and the chorus sing of their sadness and their grief over the horrors of the gods. 
Helen reminds the audience and the chorus who is at fault. The gods. She sings of Aphrodite accompanying Paris as he sailed to Sparta on his quest for Helen's beauty. She calls Aphrodite a trickster, a killer. Then she moves on to Hera, the goddess to blame for the ghost of her, the Eidolon. Together, Hera and Aphrodite have teamed up to cause her so, so much sadness. Except, actually, they're each doing it to be better than the other. She continues telling her story, speaking of her life of bad luck, the odd nature of everything to do with her own existence, of her parentage by Zeus being born from an egg, how that makes her not quite Greek and not quite anything else. She says, quote, My whole life's been strange because of Hera and because of beauty. I wish I could go back to being ugly. My beauty wiped away from me like paint. I wish the Greeks forgot my misadventures and only kept good thoughts of me in mind. And then she goes on and on about the gods, how they've caused all of this, how they've punished her, given her this bad luck, physically moved her from her home in Sparta to this foreign land, a land of barbarians, non-Greeks. She says, quote, My fortunes hung upon a single anchor, my husband, who might some day come to save me. But now he's dead and I have no hope. She speaks of her mother's death, her brother's. She sings of her daughter back in Sparta, growing old without her mother there, without her mother to find her a match if anyone would even want her after everything that's happened. She speaks of how, even if she were to find her way home, what the Spartans would do to her if she showed up there without the protection of Menelaus. She'd never be allowed back. They'd bar the gates against her after all that's happened in her name. The way Euripides writes Helen here reminds me of his Medea, a woman whose life is tied to her husband's to such a degree that when something like this happens, Helen believed Menelaus to be dead or Jason leaving Medea, they are ruined. They're unable to make their way on their own. Women like them can't just move on, can't just find another man in Greece, can't just find their own way. Euripides is writing in classical Athens, which was very restrictive when it came to women, and that comes across. But Athenian women aside, these women have everything else against them. Helen is believed to be the cause of a ten years' war that saw the death of the most heroic of Greek men. Medea is a foreigner who burned every one of her bridges at home in order to go off with Jason. Neither woman has anything without these husbands, through little fault of their own. Okay, fine, that applies more to Helen. Medea definitely killed her brother. Still, he's examining these women who are forced to live by the whims of others, and what that would be like, how it would feel to have your fate decided by others, by the will of the gods. Eventually, the chorus steps in on Helen's grief-filled speech. They try to remind her that it's very possible that the news she received from Teucer isn't all true. 
It's very possible that he didn't know the fate of Menelaus, that maybe Menelaus is still alive. Helen, though, can't be convinced. She's stuck in her sadness, the grief at learning that her fate's been decided already. They push her, remind her that he could still be alive. They remind her that not everything is bad, that she likes everyone in the Egyptian palace aside from Theoclymenus, that beyond him, she does have friends there. They tell her to go inside and speak to Theoclymenus' sister, Theonoe, who is not only Helen's friend, but also a powerful prophetess and a priestess. She will know Menelaus's fate. Go ask her, they tell Helen. Then you will know for sure, and you can behave accordingly. Weep and grieve, or keep your hope. They add that they wish to go inside with her to hear the news from Theonoe themselves. Quote, Since women always ought to work together. Euripides, I love you. They continue to speak. Helen is so broken by the war that's been fought for her, so overwhelmed by the sadness and the guilt of it all being done in her name, even if she was nowhere near the action, had no say in what happened, and couldn't be blamed if anyone knew the truth of the Eidolon. Still, it was all done in her name, and so much blood was spilled. She considers ending it all, especially if Menelaus is indeed dead. If that's true, she can't see any way out. She considers how she could do it, determining that hanging herself is undignified, that she's better than that. Instead, quote, I'll drive the iron inside my flesh to win the game of death, a sacrifice to them, that triple team of goddesses. I wouldn't normally quote so much about suicidal ideation, I'm sorry, but I couldn't let you all live without that line, to win the game of death. The whole thing is too powerful, an indictment of the gods who started all of this. Helen goes on, theorizing about Menelaus' death still, telling the chorus that if she learns that he is definitely dead and gone, she will have to kill herself to end it all. She speaks of the war, and while I really should move this along, I just have to quote more of it to you because it's too good. Quote, Oh, Troy, unhappy city, ruined through deeds that were not done. How terribly you suffered. My gifts from Aphrodite bore so much blood, so much weeping, grief on grief, and pain on pain. And she continues later, quote, the land of Greece cried out and keened with wails and lamentation. They beat their faces and ripped their tender cheeks with fingernails that scraped till they were wet with blood. Euripides is definitely telling us a little something about the horrors of war, and that's not unintentional, or just a side effect of speaking of the Trojan War. This was written very shortly after the famed Sicilian expedition, which did not go well for Athens. Of course, we can't really say for sure whether Euripides is condemning war because of how the Sicilian expedition went for Athens, i.e. that they lost badly, or just because he was anti-war broadly. Still, it's an interesting added piece in a work that already is a commentary on the gods and maybe even the way that Greeks have been viewing Helen for the last few hundred years. As Ash put in their notes on this play, thank you Ash for notes, this is a Helen who is 
desperate, who is enslaved by her beauty. What I wouldn't give to talk to Euripides to ask him questions about why he wrote what he wrote, my kingdom for a time machine that doesn't break everything. Now, remember, before all of this began, Helen was meant to go inside and speak to Theoclymenus' sister, ask her for a prophecy of her future, gain some insight into what's happened, what will happen, and maybe just how screwed she is or isn't. So finally, after all her lamentation, all the talk of the horror done in her name, in the name of her beauty and her body, she goes inside to speak with Theonoe. And then Menelaus walks on stage, and he's not wearing much. Menelaus walks on stage wearing very little, rags really torn to shreds by the shipwreck he's just endured, the reason he's washed up, all haggard and torn up, on the shores of Egypt. But he doesn't know where he is, has no idea, actually. He begins with a speech explaining this, telling the audience of who he is and what he's endured. He references his father, Atreus, and his father, Pelops, a less than subtle nod to the curse that hangs heavy on his family. He tells the audience how he's been trying to get home, how he's sailed everywhere across the coast of Africa and found no welcome, and that every time he's about to finally sail home, gets far enough north, every time the right winds catch his sails, they blow in the opposite direction and he's pushed away from Greece once more. Never reaching home, never even getting close. And that's when he was finally shipwrecked. Only he and a few others survived the wreck, though one survivor is particularly notable. Can you guess who it is? His wife. Menelaus tells the audience that he and Helen, the woman who caused that awful war in the first place, survived the shipwreck. He goes on to say that he left her in a cave nearby so that he could find out where they are, whether they're in enemy territory or not. He's embarrassed, though, to have to explain who he is when he's looking so shabby, so tired and dirty, so broken down by what he's endured. Finally, he spots someone coming out of the palace. He's eager to speak with them to find out who lives in this fancy, obviously very rich palace that he's stumbled upon. So when an old woman exits the palace and addresses him, he's happy to speak. Kind of. Because, well, this woman immediately tells him to leave because he'll annoy the man who rules the palace and that even worse, if he's Greek, he's sure to die. No Greeks are welcome. They have a kerfuffle, it seems, with Menelaus telling her not to threaten him, not to use fists or shove him, and her replying that it's his fault because he won't leave. He pushes her, asking her to go, just go inside and speak to the ruler of the house. But she cuts him off. It'll be worse if I do. He's clearly not listening to her very clear instruction. If you're Greek, you're not welcome here. In fact, you're completely fucked. You will be killed. And, well, Menelaus is a bit of a dink, frankly. I'm lost, he announces petulantly, before adding that he had a very famous army once, to which she replies, quote, Were you important somewhere? Here, you're not. <sighs> which he finds to be quite unfair, quite disrespectful, but again, imagine it, petulant. He says that he used to have good luck, to which she replies, quote, Then why not leave? Your friends can watch you cry. Anyway, I love her. Menelaus, though, ignores the jabs and also ignores her very obvious instructions to leave. 
Instead, he presses for information, asking where he is, whose palace, whose kingdom this is. This is the house of Proteus, she tells him, the kingdom of Egypt. Menelaus isn't thrilled to hear that he's all the way in Egypt. It's not exactly close to home, and he's been trying so damn hard to reach Sparta. She's a bit snippy, though, when he's upset to be in Egypt. Quote, the sparkling Nile. What's wrong with it to you? And I mean, she's not wrong. The Nile is awesome. And I think under normal circumstances, Menelaus would agree. It's just that he'd really like to be home, which is basically what he tells her. Quote, I wasn't criticizing. I'm just sad. Again, this Menelaus is a bit of a dweeb so far, but I think we'll come around to him. Still, the immediate juxtaposition of his complaints on his own luck versus Helen's very valid and very righteous laments about her situation is interesting. Obviously, hers is also a matter of luck, but she can speak about it in terms of divine intervention, the actions of the gods and how they've affected her entire life, her entire fate, how it's affected the whole Greek and Trojan worlds. How much needless bloodshed happened, how tragic it all is, the lives lost. Meanwhile, he's like, I'm sad. Still, he's not pulled off his course too long. He asks the woman again about her master, about who rules the palace, the kingdom there in Egypt. She explains that this tomb they're standing near is his, Proteus. Now that he's dead, his son rules the kingdom, and he hates Greeks. Finally, Menelaus asks the important question, why does he hate Greeks? And she answers him, quote, Helen, the child of Zeus, is in this house. The old woman standing outside Proteus's grave, speaking with a ragged, tired, and broken Menelaus, announces that the reason the king, Theoclymenus, hates Greeks is that Helen is in his house. She what? Menelaus asks her to repeat herself, not believing what he's just heard. She says it again, quote, the child of Tyndarius, the girl from Sparta. I love that in answering this question, she manages to give Helen her two fathers, Zeus and Tyndarius, but it's all the same woman. This is ancient Greece, and everyone would have just been like, yep, that's Helen. Of course, the important part here is the way Menelaus is absolutely reeling from this news. Sorry, what? My wife? Here? He's baffled. He's just left her in a cave, not even hours ago. He says, quote, but when? My, my wife was stolen from the cave? To which the woman replies, without further explanation, that Helen arrived before the Greeks ever arrived in Troy. She won't hear anything more from him. She tells him that he's come at a bad time, there's trouble, and if he's caught there, he will be killed. She's trying to help him, she says, that she actually likes Greeks, but she's afraid of Theoclymenus. And there, she finally leaves him. Leaves him feeling very, very confused. Menelaus is reeling. He begins a speech, trying to talk through what he's just learned, to understand how it could be that this woman believes Helen to be here. What confusion could have taken place for this to occur? He theorizes that the woman staying there in Egypt must be a different Helen, just a woman with the same name? Except, he continues, 
Is there another Zeus who could be her father? Another Sparta there in Egypt? Where this other Helen could be from? Somehow he decides that those are possible, but there's only one Tyndarius. That's the big confusion, which I love. Tyndarius is where you draw the line, but not like Zeus. He just can't fathom it all. Can't sort it out in his mind. He says, quote, Is there another country that's called Sparta and Troy? I guess the world is large and many men must have the same names. Also cities. Also women. What a good line. This Menelaus is funny. Yeah, sometimes people have the same names. Uh Uh-huh. Not the same fathers, though, often. Still, after all this, he won't accept the fact that he will not find a warm welcome there in Egypt. He decides that no matter what that woman said, the king will surely welcome him, give him food and something to wear. That it's impossible that he won't be given a nice welcome. He's famous, after all. His name is well known, and surely this king will realize that and be his host. He decides he'll wait there for the king and just decide what he should do when he sees him or meets him. If he seems scary, then he'll leave. But if not, he'll ask for all the things he needs. And then Helen comes back on stage. She doesn't see Menelaus yet. First, she has to tell the audience what she's just learned from Theonoe, the prophetess. That Menelaus isn't dead. Phew. Lucky we have her here to tell us. She is Thrilled by this news, of course, relieved and happy and eager to talk about what she's heard. Not only is he alive, but when his trouble is ended, he'll reach her there in Egypt. She finishes her speech, quote, Oh, my husband, when will you come? I'd be so glad to see you. And then she sees him. There's no way this isn't meant to be at least a little comedic, but also the dramatic irony. Oh, She sees him, and she immediately questions who this man is. There's the dramatic irony. She assumes he's working for Theoclymenus, there to force her to marry him. She decides to run from him, as run as fast as she can to the altar of the tomb, hold on to it so that this rough-looking man, this wild-looking man, can't get her. Menelaus, of course, sees her now and equally does not immediately realize who he's looking at, though he has a much better reason, given he believes Helen to be in the cave where he left her. Helen, meanwhile, probably should have recognized her husband. But hey, she's been through a lot and it's been 17 years and he does look haggard as fuck. Still, Menelaus sees this woman coming from the palace, running from him, racing to the altar nearby. He calls out to her, asks her to stop, asks her who she is. He adds, quote, your looks gave me a shock. In fact, I'm speechless. He is not, in fact, speechless. They begin a back and forth, neither realizing who they're looking at, but both noticing the resemblances to their spouse. Menelaus asks who she is, and she replies asking who he is. They won't tell each other, but they are both confused, speaking to the others if they're speaking to themselves. Menelaus says that he's never seen another woman who looks this much like Helen. And Helen says that, quote, It's a god to recognize one's love. They continue. Menelaus asks if she's a Hellene, a Greek. And she tells him that she is, and asks the same. To which he replies, quote, I never saw a woman so like Helen. And she says, and you're like Menelaus. I can't speak. This is finally enough. Menelaus replies, confirming that he is indeed Menelaus. It's all Helen needed to hear. She's relieved. 
thrilled. She calls out to him. At last he's here. She asks him to come to her, to come to his wife's arms. But it won't be that easy. Helen is, at least momentarily, relieved to have found Menelaus. She's so happy that this dirty, wild-looking man standing before her, shipwrecked on the shores of Egypt, is indeed her husband. The husband she's been longing for, thinking of every moment of the last 17 years. The husband she believed to be dead, that she's been worried about, hoping to see every moment of every day. But he won't come to her. In fact, he snaps at her, telling her to get her hands off of him. Tells her that she is not his wife. She tries to explain, remind him of when they were married, but it's no use. First, he thinks she's a ghost, but she tells him that no, that isn't it. Still, he can't accept it, can't believe that he has two wives. He just left his own wife, Helen, in the cave nearby. This woman might look like her, but she certainly isn't the same Helen that he just left. God's Greek mythology is timeless, isn't it? Can you just see this, like, in modern fiction movies? This not-so-mistaken identity, the romantic tension that comes from knowing that one person knows the truth while the other is missing out? Knowing that Helen knows that this is the true Helen and that she loves her husband so damn much, but here he is rejecting her, not accepting that it's her, instead calling back to the ghost of her, thinking she's a ghost... When the one he thinks is real is the version made of air. And that's essentially what Helen tries to point out to him. She tries to convince him, telling him that she is his wife. Can't he see it? She tells him that there is no other, it's only her. Can't he see his beloved wife standing right before him? But he can't. And it's tough to blame him. He's been fooled these last 17 years, and that isn't easy to accept. But she keeps trying. She tries to explain to him what happened. She tells him that she never went to Troy, that she was brought there to Egypt instead. He concedes that she does look just like his wife, but that's it. Just looks. Quote, Who manufactures living, seeing bodies? The gods, she tells him. The gods did this. She tells him that the gods made him a fake wife, a fake woman, out of thin air. She tells him it was Hera, that she did it so that Paris wouldn't get the real Helen. Then she swapped them, tricked him. Menelaus says, quote, How? So, so you were here and in Troy too? And Helen replies, Names can be everywhere, a body not. (sighs) Another good one, Euripides. But poor Helen, Menelaus is not convinced. He can't believe that she can be Helen, that there can be two Helens, or rather that the one he's been traveling with for seven years, fighting over for another ten, 
isn't actually his Helen. A tough pill to swallow, so we can't exactly blame him. Helen has an uphill battle here. She asks him if he's leaving her for it, for the emptiness. And he says yes. He tells her, quote, My pain at Troy persuades me. You do not. Again, good line. And then, then a servant comes rushing up to Menelaus, tells him he's come looking for him, sent by his men back at the cave. The man is frantic, breathing heavily, panicked even. Menelaus asks him if they've been robbed by the barbarians. The word barbarian is used a lot here, and it's important. I've said it before and I'll say it now. The word barbarian in ancient Greek just referred to people who were not Greek, who didn't speak Greek. It comes from an onomatopoeia, the sound of languages that weren't Greek, interpreted by Greeks. Of course, in this context too, there is an element of the modern word. The Egyptians here are hateful of Greeks, or at least Theoclymenus is. He is a bad dude attempting bad things, so it's extra interesting used in this context. Because it kind of means both. But it still has the connotation of, this is someone who isn't Greek. The servant replies to Menelaus. When asked if they've been robbed by the Egyptians, he says that the word rob is too small, too insignificant to explain what happened. He continues, quote, Your wife is gone in, into the folds of the sky. She's taken. She's invisible. She's hidden in heaven. She has left the holy cave where we were guarding her. She said, Poor Trojans and Greeks who died for me beside the banks of the Scamander, all through Hera's schemes. Paris, you thought, had Helen. He did not. I stayed as long as I was meant to stay, and now I'm going back to the sky. My father, I've served my destiny. He adds, Poor Helen got a bad reputation she did not deserve. And then he sees the real Helen, the Helen standing before Menelaus, the Helen who's just begged him to believe her, to accept that she is actually her, that she is his wife, that she's been there in Egypt the whole time, that the other Helen was nothingness, was created of air by the gods, that the other Helen was the fake, the ghost. The Eidolon. This is episode 175. First he made us feel for Agamemnon, and now Menelaus is sexy? Euripides is Helen. The servant has just told Menelaus of Helen's disappearance from the cave where he left her protected not long ago. He tells him of the words she spoke before she disappeared, how she spoke of the horrors of the war, how she was brought there by Hera's schemes, how Paris never had the real Helen to begin with, how she was returning to her father in the sky. And when the servant finished speaking these words of ghost Helen, disappeared Helen, he sees the real Helen standing right there in front of Menelaus. And, well, he says, quote, 
Oh, hello, Lita's daughter. So you're here? I was just telling how you'd gone away to nestle with the stars. I didn't know that you could fly. The servant doesn't know what he's saying. He believes that this is the same Helen he just saw apparently fly up into the sky? Menelaus, though, now understands. Now he believes this Helen, who's been standing before him, begging him to believe her, begging him to accept that she is his wife, begging him to show that he still loves her, and showing him that she still loves him begging him to take her home. He says, quote, Her words have turned out true. This is the day of happiness I longed for, when I can finally take my Helen in my arms. And while this part is super fucking nice and cute, Helen is so, so happy. She's so happy to see him, so happy to throw her arms around him. She's just so, so happy to have her husband back. And Menelaus feels the same. He tells her that he has so many things to say, he doesn't even know where to start. Helen's almost crying with happiness. She can't get over her relief, her delight, that she has her husband there with her, finally. It's so fucking lovely and emotional and romantic that Menelaus even says outright, quote, The past is gone. The god once took you away from me, but leads you now to a different life, a better future. Like, he just believes and accepts everything. He believes her. He understands that it was all the will of the gods, that the woman who spawned the whole war wasn't her, that none of this was her fault, that she caused no deaths, that it wasn't even her body. He just accepts it and is immediately willing to move on to start their lives together fresh and new. And not only that, but when Helen once again exclaims how happy she is, he replies, quote, Yes, be happy. I pray the same as you. We two are a team. If one is sad, so is the other. <laughs> Which is how we get the title of today's episode, because I thought Euripides really stretched it by having us sympathize with Agamemnon back in Iphigenia at Aulis. But I am actually smitten with Menelaus now. And frankly, that is absolutely absurd. And I love it. This is romantic, in a way that so very few other Greek plays are. It is about their relationship, their love, their reunion. They keep talking, and honestly, Menelaus just keeps being more and more lovely, and Euripides just keeps proving he can write pretty fucking healthy romantic relationships between a man and a woman, and isn't that refreshing? Menelaus says to Helen, quote, you have me and I have you. I have lived through so many dawns of suffering, but now I see the light. Euripides is writing a couple that are equal. Like, Menelaus is just repeatedly emphasizing not only the love and affection he has for his wife, but the respect. He is calling them a team implying they are equals in their relationship. And while my mind is exploding from the sheer ancient Athens of it all. <sighs> With this romantic and beautiful reunion somewhat out of the way, or certainly the initial thrill dissipating into a comfortable affection and general happiness, 
Now Menelaus is interested in knowing how exactly things came to be as they are. And I mean, fair. He's got a lot of information to take in, and frankly I'm impressed he came around as quickly as he did, even if it definitely wasn't immediate. How did you get here? He asks Helen. Helen, though, would much rather not revisit the past. How she got to where she is, and everything that happened in between... She tries, though not very hard, to keep him from asking her, but ultimately she recognizes that it's a story that needs to be told. She finally says, quite adorably, quote, curse that story, which I'm about to tell. Helen begins her story to Menelaus, and, well, yet again, this is where we get some really good lines, because I don't know if I've made it clear, but Euripides was a really good writer. Quote, The ship didn't fly to the bed of that foreign young man. My desire didn't fly to adultery. The story continues, but it's one we've already heard at the beginning of the play, during Helen's own monologue. It was Hermes who brought her there, but at the will of Hera, all because Paris chose Aphrodite in the contest, the judgment of Paris, that damned golden apple. He determined that Aphrodite was the fairest and Hera wasn't having it. They speak of all that's happened, of Helen's mother back at home, of her death. They speak of Hermione, their daughter, alive but mourning her mother's choices, or rather the ghost of her mother's choices. They talk of her brothers, also dead of grief. Then the servant chimes in. He wants to know what he's missing. He sees their happiness, their relief, but he doesn't understand. So they explain it to him, and we get the brilliant line, quote, We suffered for no reason? For a cloud? Yes, Greeks and Trojans, you suffered for a cloud. Because the gods are fickle as fuck. That much Euripides wants to make very, very clear. There is no reverence for them here. The servant, the messenger, is happy for the couple. He speaks of his memories of them back in Sparta, of their relationship before Menelaus, asks him to return to the men at the caves and tell them the news, and that they should continue to wait there, to wait out whatever challenges he still has to face there in Egypt, to wait there so that they might escape together if they need to. And they will need to. Before the servant messenger goes, though, he speaks of prophecy. He's angry at the prophets who led them to Troy in the first place and kept them there, Calchas, back at the very beginning of the war, and the Trojan Hellenists, the prophet during the war. He's not a fan of prophecy. Quote, No one gets rich from sitting beside the prophet's fire and doing nothing. Forethought and brains can tell the future best. You can't blame this guy for being a little bitter. He's just lived through the Trojan War, seen who knows how many of his friends and family die all over this woman who, he's just learned, was a fucking cloud. So the easiest and most rational thing to do here is to blame the prophets who led them astray. Like 
Calchas told the Greeks they had to su- sacrifice Iphigenia at Aulis so that they could have a bit of wind, but somehow he didn't know that all along the Helen they were going after was a divinely created cloud? So much for the voice of prophecy. But with the messenger gone, Menelaus and Helen are left to continue catching up on all they've missed, having been away from each other for 17 years. Helen wants to know about what Menelaus has been through, but the wound is still too fresh, so he doesn't want to go into much detail. And who can blame him? Instead, he tells her simply that the war went on for 10 years and he's been sailing around the sea, unable to reach home for another seven after that. Helen is sympathetic and kind to Menelaus. Honestly, now that they know they're not mistaken, that the person they're each standing in front of is actually their long-lost spouse, they're both so fucking lovely to each other. Like, they really just missed each other, and now it's just nice to be together, to talk about what the other has gone through, to talk about how happy they are to be finally reunited. People have told me how lovely their relationship is in this play, but I think I had to read it to believe it. Because, I mean, it's Helen and Menelaus. They're not exactly my go-to examples of a romantic, happy couple who's just loving and devoted. But hey, I should have more faith in Euripides, because if anyone could do it and make it believable, it is him. But we're only halfway into this play, so things can't stay good forever. Also, yes, I'm sorry we're only halfway into the play and in episode three i promise this won't be six episodes four max it's too good is all now though we're nearing the drama the excitement the thing that will make this a greek tragedy and not just a romantic story of lovers reuniting they begin to speak about leaving egypt together and for all helen was begging him to realize who she was for all she was dreaming of seeing menelaus again hoping and praying and worrying over him. Now that he's here, she doesn't know how she can possibly get out of Egypt with Theoclymenus after her. Instead, she wants Menelaus to escape without her, to save himself, because if Theoclymenus were to catch them, he would certainly kill Menelaus. They talk about this for a long while. A beautiful and quick exchange of words as Helen tries to convince Menelaus that he should run that her fate is already tied to Theoclymenus. But she also tells him how bad it will be for her, that her marriage to the man would just be rape. She's very explicit, and Menelaus is horrified. He can't face the idea that he will leave her there after finally reuniting with this Helen, the Helen who's loved him all along like he's loved her. So, they start to plot and plan about how they could get away from Theoclymenus and Egypt together. There's just one big problem. Theoclymenus's sister, Theonoe, is a very powerful prophetess. She will have already seen that Menelaus is back, and will see what they plan before they can even have it fully fleshed out. Helen and Menelaus continue to talk about how they might be able to escape Egypt together. 
Maybe they could go to Theonoe before she has a chance to tell Theoclymenus that Menelaus is even in Egypt, Helen wonders. Maybe they can persuade her not to tell him. Menelaus asks, if they're able to convince her, would they then be able to leave? With her, definitely, Helen says. Without her, no, it would be impossible. You should talk to her then, Menelaus offers, because she's a woman. And Helen replies, well, yeah, obviously I'll be the one to talk to her. And what if it doesn't work? Helen tells him that if it doesn't work, that's it. He'll die and she'll be forced to marry Theoclymenus. Which is when Menelaus reacts with a touch of his usual personality. He's not into the idea of having her marry Theoclymenus. And so instead, Helen swears that she will die if Menelaus dies. Die by the same sword that kills him and lie next to him. This is a Greek tragedy after all. We must have higher stakes, more drama and excitement, and a touch of a woman killing herself. Just the idea of it, though, hopefully. Still, keeping to the new Menelaus, he adds that he will do the same. If she dies, he will die too. Because if we have to have the threat of suicide, let's at least make it equal. It's probably sad and maybe problematic to think this, but I think I still find it nice. I mean, the threat of suicide is never good, but just the idea that even in this bit, Euripides makes clear that in this play, Helen and Menelaus are equals. No matter what. It's so rare that I'm forced to love it. And speaking of their devotion to each other and Euripides really messing with gender roles in the most satisfying and meaningful of ways, from here... Menelaus launches into a speech about what they plan to do and how it intersects with what he's already gone through. Quote, We'll struggle in a mighty contest. The prize is bed with you. Come one and all, I will not shame the glory won from Troy, nor when I come to Greece will I be shamed. I, who robbed Thetis of her son Achilles and watched when Ajax killed himself and Nestor losing his son... Then shall I flinch to die for my own wife? I will not. This equation of Helen's potential death alongside Achilles, Ajax, even Nestor's son, is meaningful. Every other interpretation of the Trojan War has her as a villain, in one way or another. Sometimes a sympathetic one, sure, but always, ultimately, one of the reasons for the war, whether she liked it or not. She is no Achilles, no Ajax, no Nestor. She is Helen, the cause of all their troubles. But not here. Here, Menelaus loves his wife so much that not only will he die for her, but he will die for her and equate it to the death of the best heroes of Greece. And just as the chorus chimes in to add their sympathy, to hope for an end of the curse that hangs over Menelaus' family line, Helen announces that she hears Theonoe coming out that it's too late, she must know that Menelaus is there, but that he should hide all the same. Quote, Though you survived a barbarian Troy, you'll die upon a barbarous sword right here. I'm done for. Theonoe joins the others on stage. It's not clear whether Menelaus tries to hide or if they determine it's futile. Theonoe's presence is very intentional and likely a juxtaposition to Cassandra. She walks on stage and 
owns it. She is confident and certain of herself. She is a prophetess who hasn't been affected like Cassandra. She is still on her home soil. She holds the power and it's impressive. Euripides is making her out to be someone respected, revered. She begins by speaking to her attendants of what they will do with the tomb, speaking of ritual, before she turns to Helen and says plainly, quote, So, Helen, what about my prophecies? Your husband Menelaus is right here, without his ships, without your replica. She goes on. She expresses sadness for Menelaus's plight, how he doesn't know whether he'll live or die, whether he'll ever reach home. She tells him that the gods will debate about his future, that even Hera, who started it all with the Eidolon, now hopes for Menelaus to have a safe journey home with Helen. Hera wants this because she wants the whole of Greece to know that her Helen was a fake, that the real one was never involved with Paris at all. She wants it to spite Aphrodite. Then Theonoe says what they're all thinking, quote, It's up to me whether she gets her wish. Either I tell my brother you are here and ruin you, or else I side with Hera and save your life by hiding you from him. Helen jumps in after this, begging Theonoe not to tell her brother. She reminds her of how she got there in the first place, that Proteus, Theonoe's beloved and good father, agreed to he keep Helen safe during the war explicitly so that Menelaus could come back for her after, that he agreed to this and that it was the will of the gods. Theonoe is a priestess first, Helen reminds her, and she should adhere to the agreements of her father before the wicked machinations of her brother. She asks Theonoe to help her return home, keep her husband alive, help her get her life back in Sparta, clear her name, help her daughter, who's now ruined by the believed actions of her mother, help all of us, Helen is begging of Theonoe. The chorus turns to Menelaus, asking what he will say to plead for their lives. But he won't kneel. He won't beg for his life. He says that if he did that now, it would shame Troy. That he wasn't a coward then, and it would shame them if he became one now. It's kind of nice, this feeling like he doesn't want to shame Troy, or what's left of it. It's honorable. Instead, he says he will just say what is true. Quote, I am a stranger and a guest. I ask for my own wife back, as is right and proper. Then he turns to the grave of Proteus, where all the action of the play has been taking place. He speaks directly to the dead king. He tells him everything he said to Theonoe, that he just wants his own wife back. She wants to go with him, and they have every right to be together and to be allowed to leave. Then he adds that if they are not permitted to leave, he will not only duel Theoclymenus to death, but if it comes to it, both he and Helen will die there, right on top of Proteus's tomb, tainting it with their blood. He tears up as he speaks of this. It isn't what he wants, but it is what they feel is necessary if it comes to it. But then he stops himself from crying, reminding himself to be strong now. He finishes, quote, if you want to kill us, do it. We'll die as heroes. Better yet, obey me. Then you'll be good, and I will get my wife. And Theonoe agrees to help them. 
She agrees that what they say is right. Not only is it the right thing to do to let them leave, but it's what her father would do, and she will honor him. She adds that in doing this, her brother will believe that she is doing wrong, but in truth, she is turning him towards piety, forcing him to do what is right, and thus, it's the right thing all around. She won't help them, though, beyond this. She makes that clear. She will stand back and let them do what they need to do, and she will not tell her brother what is happening, or that Menelaus is even there in Egypt. That is how she will help them. She adds that they should pray to Aphrodite and then to Hera to help them in what they need to do. To Aphrodite for their marriage and to Hera, asking her to keep her mind where it's been decided already, to let them finally go home together. With Theonoe confirmed to help them by keeping her mouth shut, Helen and Menelaus begin to plan how they will escape from Egypt. It won't be easy. They don't have a ship and they don't know the land well enough to escape that way, even if they were able to get a chariot to help them. Instead, Helen has an idea, which she begins by saying, quote, Listen, in case a woman can be smart. I'm choosing to take this as irony because this entire play up to this point has proven that women can be smart, very smart, particularly Helen, and Theonoe for that matter, and even the woman at the beginning who told Menelaus to get the hell out of there. Euripides knows women can be smart, and it's proven here because Helen's idea is this. What if they pretended that Menelaus had died? What if he died in name, but not in truth? Menelaus agrees, though reluctantly seems like bad luck. But he wonders what Helen's plan is exactly, besides pretending that he's dead. Helen, of course, though, has thought it through, because she's an absolute badass in this play. She explains that she will mourn her husband publicly, cut her hair, tear her cheeks, and wail before the king. She will play it up. She will convince him that her husband has died. But that's not all, of course. She will also ask him to allow her to give Menelaus a proper burial. She will tell him that Menelaus died at sea and that she wishes to give him this burial at sea, that this is what she needs to do in order to be ready to marry him. But very specifically, she will tell Theoclymenus that all burials in Greece are done at sea, and thus she must do the same for Menelaus with a ship to be given by Theoclymenus for this reason. It's a good plan, and Menelaus loves it. He adds that he will have his surviving men ready, swords held high, that they'll be prepared to help in whatever way they can, and join the couple on the ship when they're needed. But, he adds, who will you say told you about my death? You, Helen replies. Her idea is that Menelaus will pretend to be one of his own men, the sole survivor of the shipwreck that killed Menelaus and all his other men. Of course, he's already dressed like he survived a shipwreck. That's exactly what happened. All he has to do is pretend to be someone else. Someone with news of the famed king of Sparta's death at sea. With this decided, Helen announces that she will go inside and begin. 
She will cut her hair and tear her cheeks while Menelaus waits outside, still by the tomb, where he will find some protection should Theoclymenus find him before she has a chance to return. She theorizes as to how it will go. Two endings are possible. Either she's caught and they will both die, or she'll succeed and they'll both finally return home. She prays to Hera and then to Aphrodite to help her with this plan. But to Aphrodite, she doesn't hold back. She doesn't seem to fear the goddess at all. A plan I'm not sure is a good one, but I don't blame her. She can't hold back. To Aphrodite, she says, quote, You've hurt me quite enough before. You gave my name, if not my body, to barbarians. But if you want to kill me, let me die in my own country. Why are you never sated with wickedness, deceit and tricks and lust and charms that spill the blood of families? You'd be the sweetest of the gods to humans if you were less excessive. That's the truth. What a fucking amazing speech! Directed right at a goddess, a powerful goddess, telling her off for all her bullshit. I fucking love the way Euripides handles the gods. He's not afraid of them. He sees through their bullshit and the nonsense. Honestly, sometimes these plays sound a bit like my podcast. Fuck the gods, they've been awful one too many times. With these words to Aphrodite, Helen enters the palace to prepare herself for their plan. Menelaus and the chorus are left outside, where the chorus sings a song of lamentation for the troubles the couple is facing. They sing of Helen, her sad fate. They sing of Troy, the good people destroyed by the Greeks. They sing of Paris, a Trojan they don't have any sympathy for. They sing of what he did stealing the false Helen away and bringing her to a foreign land, destroying her marriage, all led by Aphrodite. Then they sing of the war, the grief and sadness, the dead Greeks, the cliffs and the sea, the false prize that was Helen's Eidolon. They sing of Menelaus's travels, how he ended up getting stuck there in Egypt. They sing, quote, what mortal can think it all through and explain what is God, what is not God, and what is in between? Ugh, good line. Once more, they sing of Helen's parentage, how Zeus forced her mother Leda in the form of a swan. They sing of her reputation in Greece, quote, treacherous, trustless, immoral, and godless. They sing of war broadly, quote, they're fools who win glory in war by stabbing and thrusting with spears, stupidly seeking an end to their labors in death. If the contest of blood is the judge, there will never be an end to the conflicts between cities, between humans. It's clear Euripides is speaking of all wars now, just the idea of them, the way humans always need to fight one another to the death how blood seems to be always the answer. Quote, Like lightning from Zeus, the fire of killing fell down on the walls, and you must bear pain upon pain, poor suffering woman. We pity your life. And when the chorus finishes their song with this line, we finally meet the tyrant king of Egypt, the reason for their continued sadness, their continued fear and grief. Theoclymenus walks on stage.
Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. (laughs) And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? 
That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Episode 176, the ancient heist you never knew you needed, Euripides' Helen. Theoclymenus joins the chorus on the stage at the entrance to his palace where he's placed his father, Proteus's tomb, so that he can see it whenever he comes or goes. And, well, from the very first lines he speaks, we learn what he's about. He's outside the palace with his hunting dogs and all his gear. He's got a Greek to hunt. He says that he's learned from past mistakes where he didn't always punish people with death, and he's going to make up for it. He's heard there's a Greek in town, and that Greek must die. Then he continues his dramatic introduction by noticing that Helen is no longer by Proteus's tomb. She's been there for a while, so he assumes that means she's been abducted. Taken away from him, rather, where she already doesn't want to be. It's complicated, you remember? There's also some real othering going on here, though I wonder if Euripides is making a real statement on so-called barbarians, i.e. not Greeks, or simply inventing some exaggerated character in Theoclymenus. But let's be honest, it's probably some commentary that has origins in bigotry. He doesn't make Egyptians look good. Theoclymenus is having a time. He's there to hunt a human, and he's just found out that the human he's keeping captive in order to force her into marriage is missing. He's got a lot going on when he notices Menelaus. He notices Menelaus, a Greek, the type of person he's there to hunt. But then, alongside Menelaus, he finally sees Helen. But she's changed. She's in mourning. She's changed her clothes and her hair, meaning the actor had a full costume change, a wig and a mask change, the whole thing. Not something that usually happens. It's dramatic in itself. Helen begins to tell Theoclymenus why she's in mourning. She's deferential to him, too, making a real big deal of calling him master. She's trying to butter him up, make him really feel for her. She explains that it's all over. She might as well give up everything now. Menelaus is dead. She tells him that Theonoe told her this and that someone who witnessed it all, who saw Menelaus die, also told her of his fate. And, quote, 
May that man go where I would wish. Ah, <sighs> ah. The translator here, Emily Wilson, by the way, has a note about this line. It's dramatic irony at its best. Theoclymenus hears this and he thinks Helen wishes that that man who told her of Menelaus' death would go to the underworld, would die for what he's told her. But she's really hoping he'll simply go to Greece because he's Menelaus. Did you get that? Did I have to overexplain it? Here we are. Helen and Theoclymenus continue to speak of what Helen has learned. He asks where that man is, the man who told her about Menelaus' death, to which she replies that, well, he's right here. Theoclymenus believes it, particularly due to that man's disgusting clothing. Why, he looks like he's been shipwrecked. <sighs> yes, Theoclymenus well spotted. Here, I like to consider what exactly Menelaus looks like where he's obviously been shipwrecked. There was a tweet going around a while back that was basically like he rolls up to his long-lost wife wearing nothing but a fishnet. <laughs> and frankly, I'm here for it. At least with, with this Menelaus. Helen explains to Theoclymenus how it was that Menelaus died. Quote, A dreadful death beneath the salty waves. They speak of this wreck, of how this man, this Greek, Menelaus, who's pretending not to be Menelaus, survived the wreckage when no one else did. They were wrecked in the Libyan Sea, she explains, and this man who brought her the news was simply lucky. Sometimes it's all down to luck. Theoclymenus really grills her on the details here, asking how this man arrived in Egypt, where the fragments of the ship are. He asks about the Eidolon, what's happened to her. They speak of the fall of Troy, all for nothing. It's lengthy, this discussion between the two, but what it serves to show is just how prepared Helen is for this line of questioning. She is the mastermind of the whole plot. Menelaus is just kind of there, a body serving a purpose. But the woman has all the smarts, all the cunning. She's handling the whole damn thing, and it's awesome. Finally, they get to the question of burial. Did this man, this survivor, did he bury Menelaus? Theoclymenus asks her. No, she tells him. It's horrible. He's not been buried at all. And this is why you're in mourning? He asks her. He seems to think that now Menelaus is confirmed dead, that Helen's entire opinion on everything should change. There's no need to mourn your dead husband. She's got the king of Egypt right here. But no, Helen presses. She is in mourning. She loved her husband. This exchange between Helen and Theoclymenus is really something. He's a lot, this guy. She tells him that she intends to stay true to her husband, to which he replies, quote, Why do you tease me? He's dead. Let him go. He seems to actually believe she'll just want to marry him now, that all that stood in the way was Menelaus and not, say, the fact that he was trying to force her and that she didn't actually care for him at all. Whatever, I guess. It makes Helen's plan all the more simple. Fine, she says. Begin the wedding plans, then. But on one condition. 
You have to let me bury my husband. I'll marry you, finally, if you just let me bury my husband, Helen tells Theoclymenus, grasping at him in supplication. She's really selling it. She wants him to trust her, to trust that all she wants to do is bury Menelaus, and then it's all over. They'll get married and live, well, something ever after. He replies, quote, Can absent shadows get a burial? Huh. <sighs> Good line. But Helen has an explanation. She tells Theoclymenus about the Greek customs, mostly invented ones for this purpose, that it's customary, if someone dies at sea, to bury them in an empty cloth. Symbolic. It's closure. Sure, whatever, just build a mound of earth somewhere, Theoclymenus tells her. But no, she pushes. That's not how it works. They must bury him at sea. I like to imagine he lets out a big, petulant sigh right here. Seems within his character. Theoclymenus says, okay, fine. What do you need? And here is when Menelaus, who's pretending not to be Menelaus, comes into play. Helen directs Theoclymenus to him, saying that she doesn't know everything they need. It's her first loss. But this man, this man from Menelaus' crew who witnessed it all, he will have the answers. And so Menelaus, who's pretending not to be Menelaus, explains, basically having the chance to get everything he needs to make their escape happen, just handed to him. First, we must spill blood, a sacrifice, he says. Theoclymenus agrees. Anything they need? Any animal preference? No, no, no. Just something that needs to die. Gotta keep those gods happy, right? From there, they need a beer, something that will carry the body if there were a body. Then, bronze weapons, you know, because he loved war. Theoclymenus is here for all of it. Given what Helen is asking for and their hidden intentions, it's kind of hilarious how easily this guy is like, yeah, sure, totally. Let me give you literally any and everything you need to escape from me and even defend yourselves while you do. Because he says, quote, I'll give him arms worthy of Pelops' people. Literally, I'll give you weapons as good as ones you would have had at home. Whew. Next up, well, they need a ship. And of course, if you thought this was when Theoclymenus would put his foot down and say, hey, you know, this smells a little fishy. <sighs> fishy, get it? No, he doesn't question it. Oh, you need a ship? Cool. How far out to sea does it need to be able to go? Oh, Menelaus, who's pretending not to be Menelaus, says, we need to go so far out that you won't be able to see the ship's wake from the shore. Hmm. And why is that? Theoclymenus asks. Well, isn't it obvious? Menelaus, who's not Menelaus, says. We don't want any pollution to be washed back to the shore. Duh. In this case, there's no body, so. Anyway, that's fine, Theoclymenus says. You'll have a swift Phoenician ship, and with oars, too. He's literally telling them they can have everything they need to escape. Easy peasy, no questions asked. I am starting to love Theoclymenus for this alone. And it gets better. With all of this promise to Menelaus, who's not Menelaus, all in order to bury, well, 
Menelaus. Theoclymenus finally asks the important question. Does all of this have to happen with Helen? Can't you do it without her? No, he's told. It is the job of the wife to lay her husband to rest. And don't you want a pious wife? Oh, yes, yes, Theoclymenus says. I want a pious wife. She must take part, then, in this very sketchy act that definitely sounds like the perfect way to escape Egypt and get all the way back to Sparta without issue. Okay, fine, he doesn't say all that. He's not paying attention. He's naive. Straight up ridiculous. In any event, Theoclymenus simply agrees that he wants a pious wife. So, yes, obviously, Helen must partake in this ritual out at sea in a very fast ship. And for good measure... He promises Menelaus, who's pretending not to be Menelaus, that he'll be given new clothes and food for his journey home, all in thanks for having helped Helen, and thus helped Theoclymenus. And finally, to cap it all off, Menelaus now turns to Helen, once Theoclymenus has promised all of this, and he says, quote, Your job, young lady is to let go the husband who isn't here and love the one who is. (sighs) Good one, Menelaus, who's pretending not to be Menelaus. You're charming as fuck. Not so subtle, though. From here, the chorus sings of none other than Demeter and her tragic search for her daughter, Persephone, abducted by the god of the underworld in secret, leaving her mother to grieve and search and grieve and search. Honestly, these choral odes are unbelievable. Thinking of releasing a short bonus episode that's just me reading them to you, from a copyright-free translation, because the first one doesn't show up until line 1110, which is honestly absurd for a Greek tragedy, just so unique and meaningful. And that one, and this next one, tell such explicitly detailed and beautiful stories, metaphors for what's happening in the play, but unique stories unto themselves. Oh, they're so good. (laughs) But we must move on. From here, Helen returns to the chorus to relay what's gone on inside. And remember, these choral odes are often used to convey the passage of time. Let the audience know that the plot is moving along and we're about to be told of what we've missed. Helen tells the chorus that they've passed another couple of hurdles, gotten steps closer now to their escape. Theonoe, the prophetess and the king's sister, has helped them. She told Theoclymenus that Menelaus wasn't there, that he was dead. Then, Helen helped Menelaus, who's not Menelaus, she bathed him, and boy, did he need it. There's some innuendo there, yes. She gave him fresh clothes, and now he has the weapons, too. But before she can finish speaking, she has to hush her voice and beg the chorus not to reveal her secrets. Theoclymenus is approaching. She tells the chorus, who are enslaved Greek women themselves, that if they help her now and keep quiet, she and Menelaus will escape and save the women too. Someday. Yes, she uses the word someday. They're definitely an afterthought here. 
But such is the role of the chorus. They're there to move the plot along. We can't think too much about, well, the real people they're portraying. Plus, Theoclymenus is back on the stage, and he's there to, just briefly, attempt to fuck things up for Helen and Menelaus. See, he's concerned. He's concerned that if she goes on the ship to mourn her husband and to pay her respects, as they've planned, that, quote, I'm afraid you'll get the sudden urge to hurl yourself into the swelling waves, struck by affection for your former husband. You mourn too much for him, though he's not here. Love the idea that she could instead mourn for him if he were there. Like, that he is dead or supposedly dead is kind of the point of the mourning. But not to worry, Helen's there to reassure him. Helen is incredibly, wonderfully good at convincing Theoclymenus of everything he needs to hear in order to let them escape. I love her. She tells him that she does need to honor him, honor Menelaus there on the ship, but that he shouldn't worry about her wanting to join him. What good would that do? But she adds for good measure that she asks the gods to bless this stranger who's there to help her. I, you know, her husband Menelaus, who's pretending not to be her husband Menelaus. They'll take any excuse to make a subtle jab at Theoclymenus's gullibility. Any opportunity to do a bit of a wink-wink, nudge-nudge, like, Hey, audience, isn't this fun? It's Menelaus all along, and we're tricking Theoclymenus into making it as easy as humanly possible for us to be together and get the fuck out of Egypt. She tells Theoclymenus, quote, You'll find me just the kind of wife I should be when you've done this good turn to Menelaus and me. Yes, everything will turn out well. <sighs> One thing that Ash pointed out in her notes of this play, thanks to Ash as always, is that something that comes across here is the personalities, thoughts, and motivations of the characters. You can really tell they're real people. There's subtle joking, nods at the truth of what's happening that Theoclymenus remains completely unaware of. You can see the thoughts going on in Helen's head, her planning, her happiness at having Menelaus back, and the relief of having a good plan to get the fuck out of there. The way she keeps Theoclymenus happy, believing that she's staying for him, that she'll marry him. All the while, they do this with incredibly brilliant and even funny dialogue. Lots of irony, drama, just everything. The dialogue in this play is so good. And all of that keeps going because they have to finalize the plan here. Theoclymenus confirms to Helen and Menelaus that this man he believes to be not Menelaus will have complete control of the ship he's giving them. Complete control. Helen asks that he, that he confirm, double confirm even, that all of the crew of the ship knows to obey this man without question. They're really covering all their bases here, and Theoclymenus is making it seriously easy. He is a very trusting man, which is odd, given he's been given no indication that Helen has any affection for him. But then I guess that's the power of Helen's beauty isn't it? He even promises, quote, I'll be as good a husband as your first. If we didn't know that he had been pursuing Helen against her will, that she'd been forced to run and hide from him, I'd almost feel for the guy. <laughs> Theoclymenus begins to direct his servants to prepare for the wedding, to bring gifts to the palace, to tell all of Egypt to begin the celebrations. Their king is getting married. 
Frida, quote, may our marriage be admired and envied. <laughs> and then he says to Menelaus, who's not Menelaus, quote, and stranger, when you've gone to give these gifts to Helen's former husband, deep in ocean, then take my wife and hurry her back home. You are invited to my wedding feast. Then you may go back home or stay with pleasure. He says, take my wife. <laughs> Turns out all it took was Helen agreeing to marry him, and now he suddenly doesn't hate all Greeks after all. Menelaus makes a final call to the gods for luck, for help in escaping, just a plea to, for once, have things go all right for them. And with that, he leaves with Helen. They're off to perform the funeral rites for Menelaus. Or rather, they're off to make their escape from Egypt with all that Theoclymenus has given them. And he's given them a lot. And so the chorus sings. The chorus sings of the sea. They sing of Nereus, the old man of the sea, of ships that sail upon it, specifically the Phoenician ship set to take Helen and Menelaus away from Egypt, home to Sparta. They sing of dolphins dancing through the water, of the depths of the blue Mediterranean. They sing of Helen returning home to Sparta, of all the celebrations that will take place, of returning to their daughter, Hermione. And finally, they sing of Helen's brothers, the Dioscuri, the twins, Castor and Polyduces, the twins that make their home on Olympus now, with the gods, among the gods, as deities themselves, the twins have helped Helen before, too. Saved her from that menace, that horror show, Theseus. Quote, Saviors of Helen dash over the green sea waves and over the blue-gray surging of the dark salt water. Send fresh gusts to blow for the sailors and take from your sister her shame for barbarian beds, the shame that she got through the strife on Mount Ida, though she never went to the city of Troy and the towers of Apollo. And then a messenger joins Theoclymenus on stage. Helen is gone, he tells him. The messenger tries to explain what's happened. Helen is gone. She's been taken away from Egypt by her own husband, Menelaus, who was there to bring news of his own death. They fled by sea. And, well, Theoclymenus doesn't get it. How did they get away, he asks. How did they get a ship? I mean, you gave them one, the messenger replies, though he does try to be tactful. And then the story is told. Messengers are always there to tell the stories of actions. Action that can't take place on the stage, but must be relayed afterward. It's a trope of Greek tragedy, and it's lovely. 
This messenger tells of the ship, of how the Egyptians who were sent by Theoclymenus to help with the funeral rites, how they prepared the ship for sail, how, when it was ready, they spotted some men on the shore, men who looked shipwrecked, how Menelaus called to those men, "'Oh, you poor men! Your ship must have crashed!' You look to be Greek. You should join us in our funeral for Menelaus. You've surely heard his name. And so those Greek men came on board, and the Egyptians remained silent. They'd been specifically instructed by Theoclymenus to take their orders from the man they didn't know was Menelaus. And they took those orders. So they set sail, and when they were far enough from land, they stopped for direction by this man who was leading them. This is it, he said, and prepared to sacrifice the bull that was brought on board. But he didn't sacrifice it for Menelaus for his funeral. Instead, he sacrificed it and spoke to Poseidon and the daughters of Nereus to all the sea gods that he could muster, and he asked them to bring him and his wife Helen as he revealed himself to be Menelaus, that they bring them home safely to Greece, to the harbor at Naphtalia. With a final call from Menelaus, the Greeks who'd been brought on board turned on Theoclymenus's Egyptian men. A battle broke out on the deck of the ship, with Helen cheering them on. The messenger explains that he escaped. He scaled the side of the ship when the fighting started and he drifted in the water until he was found by a fisherman and brought back to the shore where he could tell Theoclymenus this dreadful, tragic story. They've lost Helen. She's already on her way back home to Greece with her husband, Menelaus, at her side. No, no, no! I've been caught by the schemes of women! is a quote, Theoclymenus' first words after this news. After, that is, the chorus steps in to say that they had no idea what was going on. He speaks of how he would have gone after them, but it's too late. He must face that he won't marry Helen. But, he adds, he can punish his sister, Theonoe, for her role in the deception. He goes to find her, but the chorus steps in. They seem to physically stop him from hunting down Theonoe, from hurting her. It seems unique to me that the chorus plays such an active role in this plot, let alone attempts to prevent a murder. They even offer to die for her. But they don't have to, because it's deus ex fucking machina time. Gods in the machine. The gods are here to finish things up, to tie a bow on this story of escape, this heist. Helen's brothers, the Dioscori, Castor and Polydeuces, deities sacred to Sparta, they arrive there on the stage. Only Castor speaks, which I think is Euripides personally doing me a favor because of how much I hate trying to say his brother's name. But both are there, probably hanging over the stage held up by the badassery that was the ancient Greek theater's crane, just hovering, floating over the stage, being fucking badass Spartan gods. Quote, Restrain your rage. Don't get too carried away, King Theoclymenus. Castor introduces himself and his brother, explains that they're the sons of Leda, brothers to Helen. He explains that 
This marriage was not meant to be. It wasn't in the cards. That Theonoe isn't to blame. She didn't wrong you. She only did what was right. What your own father Proteus agreed to when Helen arrived on Egyptian shores 17 years earlier. It was all destiny, Castor tells Theoclymenus. Then they speak to Helen, wherever she is on the waves of the sea, sailing off. They tell her that they will be there alongside her for her journey, to keep her safe and make sure she and Menelaus do return home to Sparta, safe and sound. They tell her that in the end she too will be a goddess, so says Zeus himself, and that even Menelaus will be allowed to live in the islands of the blessed, where the heroes go when they die. Quote, the gods do not despise those who are noble, although they suffer more than the masses do. Theoclymenus responds. He's been convinced by these gods. He tells them that he will accept that he isn't to marry Helen, that he isn't still angry even with his own sister. And then, for good measure, he once again announces how perfect and chaste Helen is, because for all her strength and personality, this play is about her chastity, how she held on and waited for her husband to return, how she stayed true. The last lines of the play are by the chorus. Quote, Spirits take on many forms, and gods create a multitude of surprises. Things we expect don't come to pass, and gods find ways towards the unexpected. That's how this story went. Thank you all for listening to this re-air of one of my favorite plays. Like, what a joy. This play blew my mind in such a similar way to Iphigenia Among the Taurians, so I was just like immediately, yeah, this is what I'm going to re-air if I'm going to take some holidays off. Like, this is it. <laughs> and on Friday, I'm going to be bringing you a re-airing of the series on Euripides' Alcestis, because that is the other one that made me go, what in the living fuck am I reading? I love you, Euripides, with my whole goddamn heart. And we're just, you know, we're going to stick with looking at his most interesting and weird women characters. And then on Tuesday, we're going to listen back to the conversations that I had about these two plays, just to cap it all off. <sighs> nice themed little few episodes so that I can maybe take time off, probably just work on other stuff. It'll be worth it. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians, better known as my assistant producer. Laura Smith is now the production assistant and audio engineer. The podcast is part of the iHeart Podcast Network. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron, where you will get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. I am Liv, and I love this shit, but as we all know, Euripides especially. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz, 
this time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 